You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Acts 21:37 to 22:22. 22. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I ask something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul stood, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light shone from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and washed away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. They then raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, and now we pray that you would give us sight. We pray that we would see the risen Lord Jesus clearly. Help us to see him and love him and trust him. And we pray that you would now do this through your word and by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. We're going, or at least just delaying the hot dogs for a little longer. We just watched the highlights, a few of us, of Joey Chestnut. Uh, eating 76 hot dogs today uh, in 10 minutes. He broke his record of 75 last year. It, like, I'm, I nearly vomited uh, watching him do this. But yes, maybe you could delay just your two hot dogs uh, for another hour and a half or so. But we've got a lot to do tonight, so I'm just going to jump right in. In God's providence, uh, he has given us a text today that is about political and religious identity. A text about dual citizenship, a text in 20, Acts 21 and 22 that is actually all about Jesus. And yet we're going to see that even in a text about Jesus, it is possible that our earthly identities, our earthly loyalties do not have to conflict with our heavenly ones. So at the very uh, beginning uh, phases of Paul's very long trial that we're now getting into and now into the rest of the book, we're going to see Paul answer some implicit questions that are asked of him by a Roman official and by the people of Israel. And so we're going to think about those implicit questions being asked to Paul uh, for our three headings, how we're going to outline this uh, text today. And that is actually a very, some helpful questions for us to consider on this July 4th. That of who are your people, who do you belong to, and what is your nation? These are, these are our national and ethnic identities that are swirling around here. So we're going to think about this first question of who are your people? How might you answer that question? Reminding us, uh, reminding us of where we left off last week, uh, the people of Jerusalem are ready to kill Paul. They've heard that he's preaching against the law, that he's preaching against the temple as he's been traveling around the Mediterranean world. They see him as not only a threat to their way of being, but actually kind of as like a disloyal traitor in a Jewish culture that many might feel is barely hanging on by a thread in the secularizing force of Greek and Roman cultures all around them. Groups like the Pharisees are trying their hardest to hang on to the things that they think make them who they are. And then this guy, Paul, is going around the world, and even amongst them here in Jerusalem, they think like cutting their legs out from underneath them. In their minds, they, think, they must think of themselves kind of like Moses or Aaron, as the people are coming out of, of Egypt, out of slavery. And then here comes Paul, someone maybe like Aaron's sons of, if you know that story in Leviticus 1 of uh, Nadab and Abihu, of these sons who just kind of show up with like this strange fire. They're kind of doing whatever they want to in the outer courts of the tabernacle, just kind of making up worship as they go. And 
in those stories in the Old Testament, God judges that kind of disregard. And so, here they are, this nation of Israel, ready to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. All then, when the Romans, out of all people, rush in to rescue Paul, carry him out of there. That's not the first time or the last time that they will do that. And so what we've got here is Paul in front of a Roman tribune, a Roman official who uh, feels pretty similar to the role that Pilate played in Jesus's trial. He's a little confused. He's trying his best to perhaps understand the Jewish culture that he's overseeing. And we're going to see two scenes of him on the front end and the back end of him being really, really confused about Paul with Paul's address to the Jewish people in the middle. Paul is brought in before the tribune, maybe about to be beaten before him, uh, when Paul says to this man, this tribune, in a very educated Greek, he says, may I say something to you? And then the tribune stops. because He wasn't expecting Paul to speak Greek. Greek is the language of culture, of art, of philosophy, of education. Not to mention, it's probably this man's, this tribune's, uh, home and heart language. We learn in chapter 23 that this man's name is Claudius Lysias. Lysias is a Greek name, and Claudius is likely the Roman name that he took for himself when he became a citizen of the Roman Empire, undoubtedly naming himself after the emperor. And so, here, now, this man who is about to be beaten uh, is speaking his own heart language, and he stops. And he starts asking him a bunch of questions. In his questions to Paul, he shows that he thought Paul was the Egyptian leader of a huge group of assassins, Luke calls them, or literally a group of dagger men. The historian Josephus writes about these guys, these dagger men, uh, that they would like blend into huge crowds with daggers and they would uh, find people who are sympathizers with the Romans and they'd just give them one of these and kill them and then just evaporate back into the crowd, making it impossible for them to find them. So he thought that this was the leader of that group. Uh, Josephus also tells us that the governor Felix, who we'll meet in chapter 23 earlier, had rooted out and, uh, these dagger men so much that about 4,000 of them had fled out into the wilderness. And so this tribune thinks that this Egyptian leader has now come back in, the crowd has identified him, and they are ready to kill him. When then Paul speaks to him in Greek, and Paul tells him in verse 39, he's, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm not the leader of these assassins. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Now, while it's certainly in Paul's interest to clarify that he's not this Egyptian assassin, he could have just cleared his name by saying, like he will later, hey, man, like I'm a Roman citizen. Like, why didn't you just say that now? That would have saved some time. He's saying, I'm from Tarsus. I'm from a city in Turkey. He could have said, I have no idea what's wrong with all these people out here, why they're so upset. Get me out of here. Save me. But he doesn't say any of that. He says, he says, I am them. I am a Jew. I am them. They are my people. Despite all of their problems, despite all of their unbelief, would you give me a chance to just talk to them? Again, thinking about what we considered last week in Romans 9, He loves these people so deeply, even in their sin, even in their violence, even in their hatred of him and their hatred of Christ. He is them, but for the grace of Christ, he would be them, as we'll see. And so, to to answer the very first question of 
Who are your people? For Paul, the answer is them. The people of Israel, they're my people. Now for us, that question becomes more complex. The people of Israel were not just a political or cultural reality like the American people or the people of your country that you might come from, but the people of Israel were also a theological people as well. While many Americans today want to conflate all of those things together, politics, culture, and religion, the United States of America is not a theological entity. That is, it hasn't ever been in covenant with God. We are not a political reality that represents the reign and rule of God. That is the role of the temple of God, the church of God, the people from every tribe, tongue, and language through whom God is building his people, his kingdom. And yet, I think there actually is something instructive for us here in that for Paul, the shortcomings, the backwardness, the violence, and the sin of his own people actually do not drive him away. When this mob violence, this threat of his own murder is happening around him, he doesn't like threaten to move to Canada or something if the outcome doesn't go his way. Or he doesn't threaten to like move to Texas or something. Or whatever the place might be where he thinks the people there might better fit his presuppositions about what a flourishing individual and cultural or societal life might be. No, the sin of his people actually drew him deeper in that they might be transformed. The sin of his people didn't make him just want to eject and get out. Because Paul's seen the world, and he knows that every single place in the world that he has been to is crooked and is jacked up. Why? Because every single place in the world is filled with humans. Every city that he's ever been to is filled with humans who are crooked and selfish and jacked up. And so this speaks to those of us who have like some idealized utopia out there, that of Canada or Fiji, or Finland, or Texas, where things are right and good. No, there is still brokenness, there is sadness, there is corruption in all of those places. But it also speaks to those of us with an idealized version of an American utopia, of a nostalgia. That place doesn't exist now, in fact, it never has. And why is that? Why has America never been the kind of utopia that we perhaps long for it to have been? Well, because there have always been people, and wherever there have been people present in any culture or any society, things will be broken. Things will be selfish. Things will be crooked. And so it's best and better to see ourselves, to see ourselves as actually part of the culture to which we belong. There's wickedness and evil within here as well as not just out there. It's best to see our own culture, our people, through realistic glasses, but through glasses of love. Because the grass is not greener elsewhere. I know it's easy to think that in Albuquerque, where things are brown and you just have rocks in your front yard, but the grass is actually not greener. Super trite here, but the grass is green where you water it. Where we, the church, 
water this place, this city together with the, through the power of Christ, the transformation of the Spirit, even in the face of harsh opposition, that we might find joy, that we might find contentment wherever we are. And so, while Paul answers, who are your people, with the answer of them, they, they are my people, and I, please let me speak to them, them, this chaotic and violent mob out there who wants to kill me, they are my people, that isn't necessarily the same thing as how he would answer the second question, that of who do you belong to? They are my people, and yet, he might answer, we'll see, the second question very differently. Who do you belong to? The tribune gives Paul permission to speak to the mob, and he immediately gets their attention, Paul does. Not only are some of the first words that he says, he calls them brothers and fathers. They're his family. His, they're all shared descendants of Abraham, but he addresses them in what Luke calls the Hebrew language. Now, likely this is the Aramaic language, the Hebrew language that all of the Jews of this day, even Jesus, would have spoken in. He didn't address them in Greek like he had probably been teaching all over the Mediterranean world in his travels. He didn't address them in Latin that most of the Roman officials would have uh, been able to understand and that they themselves probably would have addressed the crowds in. No, he came to them as one of them, and he has their undivided attention. And he immediately goes to work to defend his Jewishness. Anytime we see a repeated uh, section of Scripture, this is basically just a repeat of the road to Damascus story in Acts 9. So it's good for us to think and to observe and to consider what is different about this retelling that Luke wanted us to hear it again. In fact, we'll hear it again uh, later on in the book of Acts. So what is different about this time than the first time? Well, Paul is very, very clearly defending his Jewishness here, that he isn't a traitor or sellout. He isn't Nadab or Abihu, just strolling in, making things up as he goes along with this strange fire. No, he says that while he was born in Tarsus, he was brought up right here in Jerusalem, right here amongst these people. He is educated at the feet of Gamaliel, we know from chapter 5, who was a hugely respected Jewish teacher and rabbi. His origins and his education are flawless. He reminds them in verses 4 and 5 that this Jesus that he is currently preaching isn't what he was always preaching. Some 25-something years ago, this Paul hated what he thought to be, just like this crowd is thinking today, what he thought to be a new and dangerous new sect. He was persecuting the way, as it was called, to death. Remember, he was, he was Darth Vader, sniffing out and rooting out both men and women. He was a terror to be feared amongst these new Christians. The high priest and the council of elders gave him papers and orders on like a seek and destroy mission on his way out of Jerusalem. This way, this Christianity was a threat to the Jewish order, and he was going to be the one who loved God enough to stop it. And then Luke gives us his conversion story on the Damascus road again. And while it's good and right to call that story, perhaps the subtitle in your Bible in Acts 9 calls it Saul's conversion or Paul's conversion, uh, this is a conversion, but it isn't. The way that Paul is telling this story and what Luke is highlighting here 
differently than the original telling in Acts 9 is Paul's Jewishness. That is that Jesus confronted Saul on the road in order to not stop him from being so Jewish, but that he would actually live into his Jewishness, that he would understand rightly, that Saul would see clearly that Jesus was the actual hope and fulfillment of all of his Jewishness. And then it wasn't then some like wacko Christian who then told him how to become a member of this new cult or something. No, he says in, in verse 12, Ananias, he, what is, how does he describe him? A devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He came to me, standing by me, and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And what did Ananias then teach Saul? Saul, you, you need to reject everything you've known about your Jewish identity, reject the temple, reject Moses, overthrow the law. In fact, now just do whatever you want to and kind of make it up as you go along. No, he doesn't say that. He says, no, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. How? To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Saul has just experienced on the road a situation very similar to some of the situations that Abraham and Jacob found themselves in, confronted by God. Now Saul had two. He had been confronted to see and hear from the righteous one, a title that comes from Isaiah 53, 53:11, the story of the or the vision of a suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people. The righteous one, the suffering servant, had come to him and had spoken to him. And so Ananias told him to go and to be baptized, to identify yourself with that suffering servant to be cleansed by him, to call upon his name, the name of Jesus, to be saved by the God of Jacob, by that man. And then in a timeline detail that we only get from here, in this address, Paul tells the crowd that he came back to Jerusalem after he was in Damascus. Everything that he had known or understood about God's movement and plan of salvation had been transformed, had been redirected, and yet, he didn't just go right off to Ephesus, or to Corinth, or to Rome. No, he actually went back to Jerusalem to pray in the temple. And like other prophets before him, who God revealed himself to, Paul says that he has this kind of like Ezekiel-like trance, this dream in a trance. And God, the God of the temple, told him in verse 18, God told him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now you realize what Paul has just done. What Paul has just said to the crowd that God told him about them. God told Paul that the people would not accept Paul's testimony about God. Like, it's a little awkward here. God is telling Paul something about them that they will not hear. This is a very, like, you know, Isaiah 6 kind of message that Paul is telling his prophet about his people. They will not listen. But Paul, he he says he kind of has a little back and forth here with God in the temple. He says, essentially, no, they'll, they'll be cool. Because I used to persecute these people who follow Jesus so intensely, if I say that I am now following Jesus, they'll follow, they'll follow him too. They'll believe me. 
Once they realize what I'm realizing, I'm filling in the blanks here, but essentially I think this is what Paul's thinking. Once they come to realize that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the entire story of our people, once they come to realize and understand and just hear that he brings a far better exodus than that of what you brought us out of Egypt in, that he brings a better and more cleansing covenant, that he brings a better and more lasting kingdom, that he is the better temple by which God can dwell more closely and intimately with his people. Once they hear, once they know and see and understand all that, they'll believe. But here's what God tells Paul, and this is what finally sets off the crowd. He says in verse 21, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then Luke adds, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now what in the world? They're basically just, I mean, removed from this context. He's like, hey, God told me to go Tell, talk about him to other parts of the world, and then the nation of Israel, these people in Jerusalem say, that is a death sentence, what he just said. Why in the world? What in the world made them so mad about this? Well, their entire conception as the prioritized people of God is being challenged here in one sentence. That God himself would send this formerly well-respected rabbi to the Gentiles is both absurd. I mean, how in the world would those people out there, how would they know about God? How would they even know and understand how to respond and then obey him? They are Gentiles. Just look at them. They're awful, awful people. But it's not only absurd, it's infuriating. If God were going to speak through his prophets, he would speak to us, they are probably thinking. After all, we deserve to hear from him. It's been many centuries since we've heard from him. We need to hear again, never mind places like Psalm 67 or Isaiah 2 or Isaiah 56, where the prophets looked forward to a day when all nations would know and praise God. Never mind a prophet like Jonah, who would be sent to preach repentance to a wicked kingdom, and they did. Never mind the very covenant which God made with Abraham in which Israel was to be used as a means through which God would bless all nations. Never mind all that. Know that God would speak through a human being to an other people was infuriating. And we humans have always had a bloated sense of our own importance and significance. A sneering, prideful suspicion of people who are different or other than us, that even though theologically we might understand that God has moved toward us through grace and through loving kindness, we subconsciously believe that we probably had a little bit to do with it. We've earned that in some way. Jerusalem here in Acts 22 is the living embodiment of a parable that Jesus told in response to a people who were upset that Jesus was eating with sinners, as Luke describes them. A parable of one son who rejects his place in the family, who takes his inheritance and wastes it prodigally, wastefully on himself. After getting to such a low point, he finds himself wishing that he was a pig. Even the pigs would be better off than him. He comes to the father, and the father welcomes him with 
open, gracious, warm arms. And yet, that parable is often misnamed because that story is actually not really about that younger prodigal son, is it? The emphasis on that story, as Jesus tells it, is on the response of the older brother who has always done the right thing, who has done all that the father has ever asked of him, or so he thinks. He begrudges the return of his brother, and he begrudges the love of the father. In a book that over a decade ago just opened my eyes to the beauty of the gospel, Tim Keller shows in his little book, I think it's out there on the bookshelf, if it is, you need to grab it. Uh, It's called The Prodigal God. And he shows that some people, like the younger brother, can avoid the love of God by their bad works. Think about that younger brother who avoided the father by just going and spending and living selfishly. But just as easily and often more difficult to see and understand other people, like the older brother, can also avoid the love of God, this time though with their own good works. When obedience becomes a resume that demands reward, then it isn't grace and love that we're after. We're actually just after right payment. When grace and love are given to those that we are convinced aren't as theologically serious as we are, well, then we actually hate grace. We hate the gospel. We are all about earning for ourselves. And here is a city full of older brothers who hate the idea of a God of grace moving to a world of sinners. But on that road to Damascus, Paul realized that despite his impeccable resume, he himself was actually in need of love and grace. He was in need of the actual obedience and law-keeping of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who would live and love like a true and good older brother, that he might welcome us into the love of the Father. And so, While Paul loved and considered himself part of these people, they were his people, he didn't belong to them. He belonged to Jesus. Jesus had transformed all of him so that he, in as much as he was able to live amongst and for his people, he would. But the moment that his loyalty to them came in conflict with his loyalty to Christ, well, that's an easy decision every day. Jesus is going to win that one every single time. Now, we've got more to think about here, not just with Paul's identity as a Jewish man, but his Roman citizenship as well. But if you're a younger brother in that story of the prodigal son or the prodigal father or the parable of the two sons or whatever you want to call it, if you're a younger brother— We are so glad that you are here. Maybe you've been pursuing pleasure and pursuing the self to actually avoid thinking about, avoid being confronted by the holiness, the goodness, and even the love of God. Maybe you've never gotten so low where you've had to turn to him. Perhaps you would today. Maybe you're that low tonight, and if so, the arms of God are wide open are warm and inviting to you. Jesus loved and welcomed people far worse off than you, I assure you. And his grace reaches far deeper than anything that you could possibly muster or do in your own life. Come to him tonight.
But perhaps there are more older brothers in the room tonight. Maybe you, like some folks, should, some folks should repent of their bad works, sure. Maybe you need to repent of your good works. Now, a phrase like that could be easily taken out of context, but when a life of virtue, a life of Bible reading and church and all of the Christian trappings are used not as a means for knowing God and swimming in the love of God, but really as just kind of a conscious or even a subconscious means of coercing God's acceptance and his favor upon you. Really just as a means of elevating yourself. Well, repent of that. Repent of all of that that you might know and experience the love of the Father. We can just as easily use our good works just as easily as our bad works to avoid the love of God. And so Paul himself says in Philippians 3, 8, in considering his own spiritual resume, he said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All of that past stuff, that religious resume, could have been helpful, but in his case was actually preventing him from knowing Christ. And so all of it is lost, that he might know Jesus. And so Paul's people are the Jewish people, the people here in Jerusalem and beyond. But who does he belong to? He belongs to Jesus. But then we get this sandwich of confusion. We started with the Roman tribune who was confused about Paul, who he was. You're an Egyptian assassin, right? Nope, nope, I'm a Jew. And then he defends his true Jewishness. And then, I asked Cedric to cut off the reading a little short, but now the tribune here on the other side of Paul's address, now that the mob is ready to kill him again, the tribune is now ready to beat Paul. Uh, Luke tells us he's going to examine him, and he's just going to beat out a confession. Get him to confess to doing something wrong so that the tribune can make this riot go away. And so thirdly now, a question perhaps essentially that the tribune is asking, what is your nation? What is your nation? Who, who do you belong to? Who are your people? But then what is your actual identity? The whole city is doing like this LeBron James, like, dust in the air thing. They are ticked. The whole, I mean, it's got to be just really hard to see. There's dust in the air. They're doing the let's stone Stephen scene thing again by taking off their coats. They're ready to kill Paul. There is a full-on riot about to happen when the Roman soldiers again rescue Paul out from the, from the mob. The tribune and the soldiers especially if they don't understand Aramaic and they didn't hear what Paul was just saying to them. He, they just heard him speaking some language that they didn't understand, and then all of a sudden he says something and the people are ready to kill him again. They don't know what's going on, so they're going to beat Paul, uh, beat it out of him, say, what did you just do? And as they have him stretched out, ready to receive this whipping, this scourging, this beating, he presumably just looks over his shoulder to this centurion who's about to do this beating, and he says, hey, is it lawful for you to flog, for you to beat a Roman citizen, buddy? And the guy like, what? This centurion uh, goes to the tribune, and he says, what the heck, man? That's in the Greek. Uh, he says, what the heck, man? Uh, he's a citizen. 
Like, we can't beat citizens. There are certain rights that Roman citizens have, and you cannot be tortured if you are a Roman citizen. And the tribune says, wait, what? He told me he was Jewish. He goes to him, he says, you're a citizen? And Paul's like, I know, right? Uh, yes, I am. Um, and then the tribune's like, wait, how? I mean, it cost me a ton of money to buy my citizenship into the Roman Empire. How in the world did you, a Jew, afford your citizenship? To which Paul says, I was born a citizen. And then I assume that there was like, just like the jaw drop moment of like, what? How is this even possible? We don't know the backstory, but God's providence going a generation or two or three before the birth of Paul, at least one of Paul's parents was born a Roman citizen. So Paul too is a citizen of the Roman Empire, an ace up his sleeve if he ever had one. And again, if just avoiding suffering, avoiding anything difficult in life was the point of Paul's life, he would have played that card at the very beginning of this story. He would have played the Roman citizen card so he could get out of there and all this threats, all of these threats against his life. But he wanted an audience. He wanted an opportunity to preach Christ. Just, I, I, it's hard for me to put myself in his shoes. I hope that if I was in his shoes or his sandals, I would have actually taken the opportunity to a mob who wanted to kill me. None of us have been in that position. Maybe the worst you've ever been in that position is you said something stupid on Facebook and you, like an hour later, you came back to it and like people are freaking out about. Maybe that's like the worst kind of like mob threat you've ever experienced. I can't imagine being in this scenario, but he took it to preach Christ. But again, he's also no masochist. He's not just looking for suffering. Suffering is not the goal of life. Jesus is. And if a huge beating is going to prevent Paul's ability to preach Christ, then yeah, let's avoid that. Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Can we not do this thing? I might not be able to talk about Jesus tomorrow if I'm kind of like unconscious. So can we not do that? He's not going out and just looking for suffering. But Paul's identity as a Roman citizen, even as helpfully useful to him as it is, is ultimately subservient to his identity as a Christian. He is a Roman, yes, he is a Roman citizen, but this is under who he is. The nation that he actually belongs to is the kingdom of Christ. Paul is a Christian who happens to be Jewish. He is a Christian who just happens to be Jewish and who happens to be a Roman citizen and not the other way around. The order of the noun and adjective makes all the difference. Are you a Christian American on this Independence Day, on this 4th of July? Are you a Christian American or are you an American Christian? This is something that we thought about when we were thinking about these first people who were called Christians in Antioch way back in many chapters ago. But what is your first and primary identity? Do you find yourself being drawn toward and caring more about finding more natural affinity with your unbelieving neighbor who shares your same cultural story and your traditions? Or being more drawn towards your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in China, who are in Nepal or in Somalia, who share your same spiritual story. 
And as Paul Tripp says, you will either receive your identity vertically or you will shop for it horizontally. You will either receive your identity vertically, who you are in Christ, or if that doesn't take and you don't live into that, then you will shop for it horizontally for the rest of your life. Because actually, being an American isn't deep enough. It's not a deep enough identity to take, to fill us. And so we will go shopping. We can't just be an American. We have to be a conservative or a progressive American. We can't just be an American. We have to be a masking American or an anti-masking American, a vaccinating American or an anti-vaccinating American, a science American or this science American. We have to be pro-Trump or anti-Trump, racist or anti-racist, shopping and shopping and shopping, taking some other kind of descriptive identity of who I really am. Will this label, will this cause, will this movement, will this identity finally give me what I'm looking for? No, I assure you it will not. But Jesus will. Paul's identity is in Jesus' life and death for him that he might gain Christ and be found in him. A sure and steady anchor beyond the veil, keeping and drawing him home to itself, a citizenship which is in heaven, a heavenly citizenship. He's already said that he is a citizen of Cilicia, that he is a citizen of Rome, but in Philippians 3, that is his his real citizenship. But does that heavenly citizenship then make Paul check out of or denounce all of his earthly citizenships? No. Get this, Paul will one day enter heaven as a Jewish man, and Lord willing, One day, Jesus, a Jewish man, will welcome me, an American man, into heaven. Our earthly nations, our earthly tribes and tongues do not melt into mush in the new heavens and the new earth. Our disparate identities actually bring glory to the king of the nations. So we don't have to, we must not denounce all earthly identities, all earthly citizenships, We should actively care for and engage in our political realities surrounding us, but not putting all of our hopes into the preservation of the union of the American states, but in the union of Christ to his people. And so, you may have noticed that we didn't sing God Bless America today. Uh, We didn't sing You're a Grand Old Flag. Not because those are bad songs. In fact, you should sing those songs tonight at the fireworks show. You should sing them all. But what we are doing and celebrating here together is deeper, is a more permanent reality, is a more permanent identity than your identity as an American or from whatever country you come from. And so, rather than singing you're a grand old flag, we're going to sing tonight as we come to the table in Christ alone. And we're going to sing, yet not I, but Christ through me. The most deeply patriotic songs that we could sing as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as citizens, as the people of the king. Now, let me close our time here by sharing something, the the thoughts of one writer about patriotism from C.S. Lewis about the Chronicles of Narnia. This is, I read this this morning. This is so good. 
He wrote, for Lewis, the rightly ordered love of patriotism points us to ultimate loves, including the love of God. Lewis's famous knight, the mouse Reepicheep, in the Chronicles of Narnia is case in point. Reepicheep loves his comrade, comrade knights, loves his homeland, and he serves his country valiantly. But these loves pull him up and outside of himself, not into himself. His love of Narnia ultimately creates a deeper longing in him. He wants to seek the higher love, which in this case is a portrait of heaven called Aslan's country. If you know that story, if you know Reepicheep, the best of all the characters in all of those books, further up and further in, everybody, what a gift the United States of America is to us, but it is not our ultimate home nor our ultimate identity. Into Aslan's country we go, into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of grace and of peace and of love. So let's celebrate tonight here together our union with Christ and our union with one another. Let's celebrate the freedoms and the gift that God has given us in this country, but never mistaking a gift from the giver. Let's pray that that might be the case. Our Father, we are thankful indeed for the freedoms and the liberty that you have given us even to gather here today as your people. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world do not have this gift. And so we are thankful for it. Help us never to take it for granted. Help us never to take for granted our ability to meet together and to encourage one another and to sing together and to take of the bread and the cup together. God, help us to pray more regularly and uh, honestly and fervently for this country that you have given to us in thankfulness and in uh, realisticness, that we might understand and know what we are actually praying for, that we might live as people who can live in a peaceable way, that we might encourage those around us, that we might share the gospel freely, but help us even in our love for our country, our own patriotism, that all of these things might not find their end inward, but they might be pointing us outward to the kingdom of Christ. Our citizenship, which lies in heaven and is anchored for us from now into eternity. We pray all these things in Christ's mighty and powerful name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.